This week's episode is brought to you by The Influencer Economy. Loving what you do and getting paid for it. My upcoming book coming out in January. Please check out theinfluencereconomy.com for more information about the pre-sale and sign up for the email list for exclusive videos, chapters in advance, and other goodies that I'll be giving out to the community in advance of the book, which I'm so excited to share to the world. It features stories of YouTubers like Hannah Hart, podcasters like Mark Maron and Chris Hartwick of Nerdist, as well as other creators making the next generation of media companies. Welcome to episode number 71 of the podcast. My guest this week is Brad Feld. He invests in early stage tech companies. Brad started his career as an undergrad at MIT, where he founded Feld Technologies, which he ultimately sold. And he currently is the co-founder of the Foundry Group, an early stage investment group from Boulder, Colorado, in addition to Techstars, a mentor-driven startup accelerator also based in Boulder, Colorado, where they have 13-week programs for startups around the world, from Boston to New York to London to Seattle to Austin. Brad is also an early blogger. He started back in 2004 and currently blogs about topics like tech, investing, and even sensitive subjects like depression for founders. He's also authored many books, including the best-selling Do More Faster and Venture Deals. You can check out all his writing at feld.com. Without further ado, Brad Feld. What, how many companies have you officially invested in with Techstars and on the, with the Foundry Group? Yeah, well, Techstars has invested in now uh, about 600. And Foundry Group has invested in about 80 uh, directly. And then we also have an Angelist syndicate uh, called FG Angels. We've done another 50 or so investments. So close to two, two how many companies is that? From Foundry, uh, let's say 120, uh, 130. Uh, from Techstars, 600. Wow. And then my partners and I at Foundry, I've got three partners, Seth Ryan uh, and Jason. We've invested probably in another, between the four of us, 50 to 75 venture funds. Um, many of them early stage seed uh, funds. And so those investments probably total another, I mean, indirectly, you know, thousands of companies. And then the four of us have invested in a bunch of non-tech companies together, maybe another 40 or 50 non-tech companies. So it's upwards close to the, a thousand, maybe 800? Yeah, somewhere in that zone. Okay. So that's incredible. Lots, lots of companies. Yeah. That's why you don't go to cocktail parties. Uh, I mostly don't go to cocktail parties because I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're, uh, I wanted to just st step back for a minute and go to when you were in college at MIT back in the late 80s. And you, you founded Feld Technologies, which right. eventually got acquired. And just go, walk us through that because it's in the context of now you have so many makers and creators and entrepreneurs that are launching ideas continually on the web. But Back in the late 80s, it was more rare and, and it, the access wasn't there to, to really get your idea out there. Yeah, it was a different time and a different dynamic. Uh, the word entrepreneurship didn't really exist as a popular phrase. Um, that said, there were lots of people who were founders of companies. And so it wasn't that there wasn't uh, entrepreneurship and companies being created, uh, but they were being done with different language and there was not, not really much information about what to do, how to do it, or who was doing it. 
right in the 1980s, the, you know, the communication technologies that existed were newspapers, books, and TV and radio. And so, you know, the, the, the effort of getting any sort of publicity about what you're doing was the classical PR effort of having someone try to, you know, get somebody's attention so you could do an article in a newspaper or an article in a magazine or maybe radio or maybe TV. Um, the other is that information about how to start companies and how to grow and scale companies, how to think about investment, how to bootstrap businesses. Uh, there was, you know, there, there, there wasn't the internet and there wasn't the web. There was the internet, but not the web. And so there just wasn't this broad communication, um, including podcasts and self-generated content about this stuff. So the, the amount of information available today is many, <coughs> many orders of magnitude more, which helps inform people, not just in the U.S., but around the world, obviously. And so now you're an avid blogger, and you, you mentioned like the ability to generate your own media around your ideas. Like, when Would you say that you directionally like pivoted part of your your mental capacity to blogging and that was what was your passion that you felt like you had ideas you wanted to share uh, it's it's less clear looking back I've been blogging now for over a decade and I always liked to write and I always envisioned that part of what I did or what part of what I did was write. even in my first company I wrote a lot of memos I wrote a lot of proposals um, I was constantly sending stuff out that I read in different places to our clients and to partners. And when in uh, 2004, when I started blogging, the media of being able to very quickly put your thoughts out there um, through a blog was very interesting to me. Uh, and I figured I'd just experiment with it. And if I didn't like it, I'd stop. And if I liked it, I'd keep going. And I liked it. What were some of your early posts about? Well, I mean, I wrote a bunch of posts about... Uh, the kinds of things I was investing in, some of the companies I was involved in, uh, some of the books I was reading, uh, some of the ideas that I had about what could potentially be interesting, uh, some interactions that I'd had with you know different founders or different investors that I thought were instructive. And I think the real sort of foundational set of blogs um, that I wrote were with my partner, Jason Mandelson, uh, which to really change the way I thought about the blog and, and writing and communication, which is we wrote about 30 blog posts deconstructing a venture capital term sheet or Series A term sheet. And this was at a point in time where really a uh, term sheet was very mysterious. It was very opaque. You know, uh, the, the, the way that an on, a founder learned about a term, how, what the term sheet terms were and what mattered was by usually being in a negotiation uh, for term sheet, they learned some from their lawyers, but most lawyers focused on the wrong things or weren't good at giving business-focused advice. And we just decided it would be fun to try to write a bunch of posts that just demystified what a term sheet was and how it worked and what the terms were and which ones mattered and which ones didn't. And that blog series today still gets a, a ton of uh, visibility. It led to us writing a book called Venture Deals, which that series is probably about 10% of the book. So the book Venture Deals is much broader than just deconstructing a term sheet. But I, I think that for me was really the moment in time where I realized that the blog as a both an uh, information out vehicle for me, but also a way for me to try ideas out and learn them and get feedback and build a community around some of the ideas. Um, 
say some stuff that I wasn't quite sure what the answer was or how I thought about it yet and just see what kind of feedback came back and then engage more broadly in some conversations on the internet but being able to do it by just writing what I thought um, versus trying to get somebody's attention to write it for me uh-huh. and, uh, and and that's where that's where it took off from there. That's where the podcast is with me. It's like I can have conversations or I do introductions or outroductions where I can workshop and get ideas out that are buried inside of me and then you can see what sticks and what doesn't and mm-hmm. if things resonate then I keep going in that direction with certain guests or certain types of conversations and and in the end like the blog of that age of 2004 really was the forebear because there was no social media as it is now so you're just putting your words up on the web and hoping to get visibility so how did you transfer that into writing books like do more faster which you wrote with uh, your te- one of your Techstars co-founders. And your, your book about startup communities, I always bungle the name, but is it just called Startup Communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was the transformation from uh, web content and writing to actually writing books? Sure. So uh, just one small nuance on my motivation in terms of, of the blogging. I, I didn't actually have the motivation at the beginning of trying to get my thoughts out there. Um, I didn't really know what whether it would matter or not. And so, and this is an important part of how I like to think about starting things. It's part of how we started Techstars. Uh, you know, there were four founders, David Cohen, David Brown, me, and Jared Polis. And we actually had no idea if it was a good idea or a bad idea. We didn't, we didn't know. We, we had this premise that it might be interesting. And our worst case was that we'd make some new friends. Yeah. So, you know, with the blog, I didn't have any idea whether it was going to turn into something useful or not, or get my, my voice out or make me more visible. I just figured, ah, this is interesting. And if, I, if it's interesting, I'll keep doing it. And if it stops being interesting or I don't find any value and I'll stop doing it. I think that's a useful thing for a lot of people in the notion of experimenting. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to have your outcome goal clearly articulated at the beginning, especially when you're trying things that have very low barriers to try. And oftentimes you're, if you have specific goals, like I want to make this much money or I want to achieve this lofty expectation. It gets in the way of the process. It gets in the way of the process and you miss what could be a much more important goal because you've defined this goal. And if you don't hit the goal, well, I didn't hit the goal. Therefore, I'm not going to do this. Well, if you don't start with a well-defined goal and you just sort of are heading in a direction and experimenting, the goal that appears might be a much more significant one. Absolutely. And if people think that they have their predetermined outcome already in their mind, then, then you also set yourself up to fail because right. you don't like, it's like writing a book. Oh, I, I'm going to be a New York times bestseller. If I don't get that, then I failed, but there's so much more value intrinsically in an ROI that can't even be attached to money or a bestseller for a book. If you just write it and enjoy the process of it. I think, I think that's a great example of a friend who when when he was uh, just publishing his book, you know, called me up and he said, all right, I, I need to pick your brain about all the different things to do because I, 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 this book is going to be a New York Times bestseller. I'm going to make sure I make this a New York Times bestseller. That's my goal. I said, why the fuck's that your goal? And he said, because it's my goal to have a New York Times bestseller. I said, why is that your goal, to have a New York Times bestseller? Well, because I want to have a New York Times bestseller. You know, like, well, why? Who cares? And, and he couldn't get to the why. Like, it was just... In- you know, eventually I stopped torturing him and I gave him, you know, I gave him a bunch of, you know, ideas and thoughts and reactions that I had uh, with the disclaimer that, A, I've never had a New York Times bestseller and B, I couldn't give uh, less of a crap about whether I do or not. So, uh, and then, oh, by the way, he didn't have a New York Times bestseller. 
And, but it was a popular book and a good book. And then he rationalized uh, success anyway, which was totally good, right? Like he said, well, I wasn't a New York Times bestseller, but I'm excited about the impact that I've had with the book. Uh, and that's, that's a good path to go then. And, and it links back to uh, you know, the book Do More Faster that David Cohen and I wrote. I think we had two goals for the book, right? One was I wanted to write and publish a book. I was interested in that. I hadn't done that yet. And that was something I wanted to try and see if it was interesting or not. The second, we'd been running Techstars for a couple of years, and we'd expanded Techstars to, to Boston, and we'd expanded Techstars to Seattle, and I think we were just getting ready to start an expansion to New York. And we kept getting asked over and over and over again uh, the same questions. And we started to realize that we were answering the same questions over and over again, and that it might be useful uh, to have it uh, encapsulated in a book, knowing that the book wouldn't necessarily be timeless, but it, it might be. And it would be something that uh, founders who were thinking about going through something like Techstars could get some value out of it. So those were really the two goals. One was write a book because just kind of intellectually interested in the process and seeing what it was like. And the second was try to create uh, some formalism for some of these ideas, which could have been on the web. It could have been a blog. Right. But it was kind of a natural thing to combine with this idea of uh, and the desire for just understanding what writing a book was like. Hey, y'all, just a quick reminder, this section of the next part of the podcast is also brought to you by the Influencer Economy book. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com slash book for all the details about my maker, creator, entrepreneur profile of people I believe are the visionaries creating the next brands of media companies. It's a working playbook for us to learn from podcasters, self-published authors, founders of startups, as well as uh, YouTubers and people that I think are the trailblazers. So I would love to share this with you. Many people from the podcast are going to be featured in the book, and hopefully you'll check it out. If you have any questions, hello at influencereconomy.com is my email. Back to the episode with Brad where we get into the give before you get mentality and Adam Grant's philosophy and book give and take and how we both try to give to others before we look for our own successes. I've spent the last two and a half years interviewing people for the Influencer Economy book. I've talked to YouTubers, podcasters, investors, founders, people what I think are building the next generation of media companies and ideas. And James Altucher, who interviewed you for his podcast, is a book called Choose Yourself. And a lot of the values are transferable, like give before you get. It's such a simple thing, but until you actually sit back and think about what value helping others provides... It's almost like people think that that's the way to go. Like, oh, I should help people. But you methodically need to do it, and then you can see that it actually makes sense to help people out. Yeah, you have to be willing to put energy into the system without knowing what you're going to get back from it. Have you read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take? Uh, I think Give and Take is great. Uh, I read it when it first came out. I, it was a, if people haven't read the book but want to get a short version of it, uh, his New York Times uh, Magazine article, profile is excellent. And Adam and I finally connected recently and, and had a uh, really spirited conversation, good spirited conversation about give before you get, give first, give and take. And, and the idea of give and take being applied really to an individual person and the notion of give first or give before you get being applied organizationally and to systems, you know, startup communities, et cetera. So very reflective and, and lots of things from both uh, that are very relevant. Yeah. What, I, what got me from that big takeaway was the taker mentality 
mm-hmm. and how Adam advocates you should weed out takers. But you you can't always get rid of takers because you need to work with all types of people. Um, yeah, but- I, I, philosophically, I think you should work with with all. I think you should just be open. And the interesting thing is that over time, the amount of energy you allocate as a human to takers diminishes. And so it's not that you weed them out and never spend time with them, but it's that a smaller and smaller portion of your time ends up getting allocated to somebody uh, who's a taker versus somebody who is willing to give and engage and participate. So if you know the relationship is all one way uh, and you're the one giving and the other person's taking, you're going to lose interest in spending time with the person because you know, you're not getting sort of this balance of, of uh, up and down in terms of giving and taking. The, uh, uh, the same is true if all you do is give. If all you do right. is give, you're eventually just going to get completely exhausted and worn out. So you have to view it as a cycle or a system rather than something that's an absolute. Well, if you give without any thought about why you're giving, you end up failing because people take from you and you give so much that you feel left out or you, you feel burned out or you feel somewhat like you're giving so much but you're not getting anything back i feel like the psychology of givers is like they either succeed or they fail and then givers actually can see succeed more than takers or, or matchers well I'll, I'll i'll assert that a lot of people who give and are givers in this in this lexicon have a goal they're giving because they have a goal that they're trying to achieve but it's a goal that is a false goal, or it's a goal that is not a satisfying goal. So you create this narrative, you do a bunch of activity of which there's a lot of giving, and then you don't achieve your goal. And what you should have done, if you wanted to be successful in that arc, is redefine what that goal is. And an example of this would be in the context of startup communities, where often you hear, you know, I, I talk on a regular basis, I mean, at least once a month, sometimes more than once a month, to someone who said, for the last three years, I've been giving like crazy to my startup community, and I, I, I can't afford to eat. Like, I, I can't, I'm not making any money. And I said, well, well what are you doing? Well, I'm spending 80% of my time giving to the startup community, and I just, I, I'm not getting any money back. I said, well, what was your goal of giving 80%? Well, I was trying to get a job, or I was trying to get more visibility, or I, uh, I was just following, Brad, I was giving first, I was giving, and I was just hoping I would get money back. I said wrong goal. Yeah. Like you know, th- you know that that goal is wrong, and and as a result, the spending eighty percent of your time to try to get money back might be wrong. You should maybe consider spending twenty percent of your time, and having eighty percent of your time, you know, on something that's a, a financially generating activity, and repurposing what that twenty percent goal is for, which might be to have that eighty percent job be one that's higher paying, or yeah. if it's a startup, be more successful. Uh, or to get you networked into areas that you couldn't have gotten to or build credibility or skills. And the light bulb goes off. People are like, holy shit, I, you know, I, was, I was just thinking something good would happen. Goal. Yeah, and I, I would say that's an example in, in this sort of give and take uh, discussion. But it's true across everything. But how does this right? factor in? Because you've invested in companies like Zanga that went public and Fitbit that just went public. Like, How do you navigate this through like capitalism and people that wanting a big ROI on their investments and, you know, helping these entrepreneurs that want to have 10, 20 X returns on their startups. Well, I don't think any of these things are in conflict, right? I mean, the notion of give first is not altruism, right? I'm not giving first because I don't expect to get anything back. I'm using that approach because I don't know when or from whom or in what consideration or in what magnitude I'm going to get back. 
uh, as an investor, I don't say, oh, here's five million bucks. Just send me something back when you're successful. Right. Um, but I'll put a lot of relationship into uh, or put a lot of energy into building a relationship with a founder before I invest, partly so they get to know me and partly so I get to know them. But by putting energy in where I'm helping them, I'm doing something without saying, I'll help you if you give me this. Yeah, I'm happy to help. Then at the point at which they're interested or ready to invest or raise money, I might be ready to invest, right? Those are natural parts of it. So it, again, it's not the 100%. I'm going to take all my money. I'm going to give it away. And whatever comes back is good. No, I'm going to take some portion of my time and I'm going to give it first. And when I invest, well, that's this bucket and that investing bucket, those two things are linked together. I think the mistake is having them out of balance, not knowing what your goal is, or not being clear on what your long-term goal is, right? So as an investor, uh, I say often, I have a very, very simple job. Uh, we have investors who give us money, a box of money, and my, my job is to give them back a box full of more money. That's it. Mo I like the box of money. I mean, they literally have a like box of money. Like it's kept under their bed. <laughs> yeah. but, but my job is give them back a box full of more money over yeah. time. And I, it has to, I have to do it in a way that's legal, but as long as it's legal, um, I can do it however I want. They're not saying, and here's how you must do it, and these are the steps you must take. And so when I think about what my job is, it's very easy to define. And then the question is, how do I want to achieve my job? How do I want to accomplish my job? And I think that if you allow yourself to define that in both short-term, medium-term, long-term chunks, and you have a give first mentality to that, which is not that you must extract everything out of every interaction by predefining what you're going to get out of it. Right. But instead you have the right energy that goes into the system. Right. Exactly. It's very powerful. The system itself. It's set up for this, that you give something in and then you don't necessarily get mentored by someone, but you can help someone as a mentor and then someone else will mentor you. It's almost like, and you guys are strong believers in mentors with tech stars is you don't have a mentor like you used to because we don't have jobs for 20 years where we have that one person who's our boss that looks out for us. So you got to get mentorship wherever you can. And it could be a conversation like this for 30 minutes. It could be a conversation over coffee with a, a, a former colleague. But what's, what's your, what's your, why are you such a firm believer in the mentorship of, of your accelerator? Well, I, I believe mentorship is is profoundly important in the context of any human's development. And when I look at mine, right, I was fortunate early on when I was in high school and then when I was uh, a young adult having uh, some mentors who had been very successful uh, who helped me develop. And the best relationships that are mentor-mentee relationships become bidirectional. So the mentor learns as much from the mentee as the mentee learns from the mentor over a period of time. And an example I would give of that would be a fellow named Len Fassler, who's the guy that bought my first company, Feld Technologies, in 1993. Len's in his 80s. We're still very close friends. He's a very, very dear mentor. I learned more about business from Len than I've learned about from anybody else. Um, and I've learned a lot of things about life from Len. And if you sat down with Len and said, hey, did Brad learn more from you or did you learn more from Brad? Len would say, I learned more from Brad. And I would tell you, I learned more from Len. That's what you're trying that's to get That's a great to. way to look at it. So that's almost like a decision tree of people you want to invest in as a mentor. Well, I think as a mentor, personally, I have a very w wide aperture approach. 
If somebody calls me up and says, I'd like you to be a mentor, my response is that's not how it works. If somebody engages with me and starts interacting with me, I start interacting with them. Over time, the mentor-mentee relationship naturally develops. And over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year period, you get to the place where you're both learning from each other. So you're very patient. Sounds like you let relationships evolve naturally. I think you have to. I mean, at least for me, that's my personality. I live in L.A. and everyone wants a quick deal. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, well, everybody wants a quick deal. Those are, uh, I, I would, I would assert that the vast majority of those aren't very satisfying. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's valid. I mean, like, yeah, if what you want is a quick transaction and that's what you get your your dopamine hit off of, and that's how you want to live your life, awesome. For me, that's not what I care about. Uh, by the way, those people who want a quick relationship or a transactional relationship might be the ones that go to cocktail parties more often. I call those people ankle biters. Because they always remind you, like, remember that favor I did for you? Like, they're the matcher in Adam Grant's whole continuum, which I, talk, I had him on the podcast and we talked about it. And he's, he's never considered them ankle biters, but they're like the dogs that kind of nip at your heels. And yeah. they remind you for favors. And you're like, I just did this because I wanted to, not because you necessarily owe me something. Yeah. I get asked a lot from a lot of people you know, what can I do for you? And my answer is uh, nothing. Like, do whatever you want. Like, if you see something in my world that's interesting, please do it. But don't do something for me where I have an obligation to do something for you. And if I've done something for you, please don't feel like you have an obligation to do something for me. It's the worst kind of relationship where you get into this, I'll do for you if you do for me kind of dynamic. Right. And people keeping track, it's too stressful. So so why did you do this podcast? I'm curious. You know, we got connected by Coleman from Scored, and it's you made time for it. Why did I do this podcast? Coleman sent me a note saying you were cool. <laughs> Coleman went through TechStars, and you know, I I like to think that I was helpful to him during uh, during his business and over the course of his business with feedback anytime he's called. Uh, and he said I would have fun doing this, and I'm, I was happy to. Do, and he said it would be useful to you, and I said awesome, let's do it. So that, that's about the extent of it. Like I don't have a goal. Um, I, you know, I put it in that the 20% of my life that I'm willing to allocate to random things. Uh, oh, is that the number 20% or so? Nah, it, it, some days it's 10%. Some days it's 30%. I have a thing that I call, uh, uh, a fake, uh, a thing I call a fake VC day. And uh, a fake VC day is like a day full of interviews like this. That would be a fake VC day. It's like the fake CEO day where all you do is, uh, stuff that has nothing to do with moving your business forward. And, um, but I'll let 20, 30% of my life be fake, uh, fake VC time. It's, it's a day where all my whole day was that that's quite unsatisfying. And it sounds like you've met some people that way that you've worked with a lot. You talk about it in your book that you've oh, got. There, I mean, there's plenty of people that spend the vast majority of their time on things that are, uh, ineffective in terms of what their stated goal is. I don't know that it means that they're wasting their time, but if there's a mismatch between what your goal is and how you you spend your time, uh, it's worth really reevaluating. Well, I have a good Techstar uh, story to tell. We can wrap this up, I know. You got a lot going on, but I uh, went to the Techstar South by Southwest party, uh, not this year, but the previous year with Coleman, and I met Cody Sims, who's in LA, and Cody connected me with uh, Earwolf and uh, Adam, who's now the CEO, who was CFO at the time, had a conversation for about a half hour. He then connected me to Jeff Ulrich, who was their original founder, he came on my podcast. I'm now writing a chapter a year and a half later about Mark Marin and WTF and Earwolf's relationship. And I'm using quotes from Jeff Ulrich that I met by way of the Techstar world. That's 
Well, that's fun. And to close the loop, one more one more turn. Uh, I got an email from Jeff yesterday. He's coming to Boulder next week, and we're going to get together for half an hour and say hi. And we hadn't talked and seen each other for a while. So it's it's one of those things. Like you let your universe be open to different connections, and some interesting things happen. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot more to talk about perhaps another time, but uh, thank you for joining me. Awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for that. That was Brad Feld of the Foundry Group and also of Techstars, which is one of the cooler and more awesome accelerators in the world. I love their mentorship-driven mentality for creating world-class startups, including Scored, S-Q-O-R-D. Make sure you check out Scored.com. It's a kid's wearable company founded by Coleman Green that we mentioned in the podcast. Also very, very stoked for the book, The Influencer Economy, coming out in January. I think I've got around 10 and a half chapters finished. So uh, really, really excited to get that to the world because it's been a labor of love for almost uh, 10 years. You know, I've had an inkling to write a book. I'm a former stand-up comedian, and I also have worked for startups in Los Angeles, one founded called Digison that we sold to Disney, another Machinima.com, which was highly valued when I left. I ran our marketing there. It's a gaming YouTube startup on uh, the network around gaming and Minecraft. And really, it's where I got the idea for the book. And I wanted to see that these gamers were making six figures. And so we literally at Machinima had people calling us that were parents of gamers saying, why are you writing my kid a check for $40,000 because he's playing Minecraft? Why are you writing a check for 50K because he's playing Call of Duty? And I realized that, you know, I went to E3, Comic-Con, VidCon, South by Southwest, TechCrunch Disrupt, and I realized across all industries, maker, creator, entrepreneurs were launching the world's next generation media companies on the backs of their content. And they were doing it from their home, from their dorm room, from their apartment, and they weren't doing it with anyone else in mind other than creating great content, building awesome community and just launching their stuff to the world. So as I come closer to finishing the book, the podcast is going to be changing the name to The Rhino Show. So look for that in the next couple of weeks. I have some awesome guests lined up that I cannot wait for everyone to hear. But The Rhino Show is coming. I finalized the logo. I can't wait to get it up in iTunes. And the format's not going to change. It's the same old show, but it's going to be more stories from the internet and more stories from really cool people doing cool stuff on the internet. So people like Brad will still be on the show. YouTubers like Hannah Hart, you know, profiled in the book, could be a possible guest. Flula, my old buddy who did the music, a big YouTuber as well. So anyway, there's a lot coming down the pike. It's a big time for the influencer economy and the Rhino Show. So heading over to Duke's Eberts. Julia is two years old, and she's about, she's saying sentences. She's saying mine, which is a funny word to hear. Um, but anyway, heading over to Duke Zebras for some chicken in the pot with Larry, Catherine, and Julia. <laughs>